Pray with me. What would we do without you, Lord? We'd have no hope. No uh, chance of eternal life because our goodness simply isn't good enough. Our religiosity isn't what you require. You want all of us, every ounce, every fiber of our being, every fiber of our will. Lord, when we met you, or better yet, when you met us, it changed everything. And we've gathered here today in this place and at home to open our hearts up to you once again. We want to hear a word from you. We want you to transform our lives. We want you to challenge us to be the people that you've called us to be. So, Lord, I pray that you would open our minds, open our hearts, open our ears, give us eyes to see how beautiful you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. When you came in today, and for those of you who are playing along at home on the Sagebrush app, so in the room you got a sheet of paper called a contact update sheet, and for those of you at home who are on the streaming, we want you to do it on the app for us if you would. If you would fill this out, now I know how all the men are, they look immediately to their wife and they say, that's yours dear, you fill that out for me. Gentlemen, I need you to fill it out for yourself as well. And then at the end, drop it in one of the collection boxes before you go. We do this once a year just to update our database system. It's also an opportunity for you to make decisions for Christ, to move forward in your faith. Make sure you understand that there is a backside to the connection. So don't just fill out the front. Make sure you fill out the back as well. So when I get boring during this message today, you can just fill that out, all right? That'll help you out, give you something to doodle on as well. And just two more weeks, we are going to be starting a brand new series called The End, and it's all about the return of Jesus Christ. Take a look at this. Everything must come to an end. A much-needed vacation, a delicious meal, our favorite TV shows, or even a good book. What about the world? How will it end? What is coming down the line? Are we nearing the end right now? Should we be worried about the end? Frightened even? What does the Bible actually say about the end? A new series coming soon, August 27th and 28th. Join us as we talk about the end. So the end of this series is coming too. You know that, right? So we're in the middle of this series called Troublemaker. This week we're going to finish the last week of Jesus' life. And then the next week we're going to talk about how Jesus ascended into the heavens. And then it goes right in to the return of Jesus. And then to finish the year off, we're going to be studying through the book of Acts. Just to get your uh, taste buds wet for all the things that we've got coming up. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're watching from home. This past week I've been thinking all about the question that we posed last week when the question was this, if you had seven days left to live, what in the world would you do with those last seven days? And I guess we've been thinking about that because of, you know, we're looking at the last seven days of Jesus's life here on this earth. What did he do? Where did he go? If you're like me, you don't want to get to the end of your life with regrets. Regrets over risks that weren't taken, relationships that could have been secured. Uh, you don't want to have any regrets with the way you spent your life, what you invested your one and only shot at life with. 
So to get some uh, wisdom when it comes to the end of your life and how you live your life, I went to Twitter and I found some interesting tweets that might get you in the right frame of mind. I really do think these are pretty good. You can tweet them this next week. Just trying to be a full service church to you. You can tweet these tweets if you like. How about this one? Love God more than you fear hell. That's a pretty good tweet right there. How about this one? Make major decisions in a cemetery. That's a good one because that's what it's going to be, right? The decisions, you'll get it later on. Okay, how about this one? When no one's watching, live as if someone is. That's a good tweet. Succeed at home first. How about this tweet? Don't spend tomorrow's money today. Some of you needed to do that a long time ago. (laughs) How about this one? Listen twice as much as you speak. Every wife just hammered her husband in the side only harbor a grudge when God does that's a hard one isn't it and how about this one Uh, the book of life is lived in chapters so know your page number I only have a few more chapters left okay and then lastly never let the important be crowded out by the urgent One of the things that we love so much about Jesus is he was so focused, wasn't he? And everything he did this last week was to re-emphasize or to emphasize something that was very important to him. We, We found out last week that on Sunday, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And we found out that there was a prophecy in the book of Zechariah that said that the Messiah would come riding in on a donkey. So everybody knows that Jesus is proclaiming that he is the Messiah. And everybody's thinking that he's going to be a military leader. Everybody thinks he's going to be a political leader. He's going to overthrow the Roman government, the Roman authority. He's going to set up a kingdom. The disciples who have been following for the last three, three and a half years, they're going to sit at the positions of honor. Oh, this is the moment they've been waiting for. And they line the streets and they wave their palm branches. And we found out last week that Judas the Maccabean years earlier led a successful revolt against the Greeks. And the symbol of the revolt was the palm branch. And so they're saying, come Come on, Jesus, save us from the Romans. Come on, Jesus, we will die for you. But Jesus did not come to take on the Roman authorities and the Roman government. He came to take on sin, death, and the grave. He was not the Messiah that they wanted. But he is and will always be the Messiah that we desperately need. All Jesus has to do is give a big speech, rally the people, and he is king. But he'll give no speech. And he gets off the donkey and he walks away from the crowd, confusing everyone. Then we found out last week that on Monday, Jesus goes to the temple. He sees the money changers who are there who are exchanging temple money for foreign currency at an exorbitant rate. He also sees how the people are bringing their sacrifices. Remember, they had to offer a sacrifice to be forgiven of their sins for one year. And the priests were saying, your sacrifices aren't good enough. You need to buy one from the temple flock. At an exorbitant rate. They were making over $5 million a year. And this is $5 million back in the first century kind of currency. So Jesus made a whip and then he made his point. Do not politicize the church. Do not commercialize the church. When we come to the house of God. If you're watching from home. When you come to learn about Jesus. Don't come mindlessly. Give your very best 
to the one who gave his very best for you. That's what Jesus did on Monday. Then on Tuesday, we found out that he, he taught all day long from early in the morning until late in the evening. And what does he teach about? He teaches about his second coming. He says it's like a master who's going to go away and he's going to entrust resources to his servants. And we looked at three different servants who were given the opportunity of a lifetime. And two of the three servants did something significant with it. I mean, they went out, they invested the resources of the master, knowing that one day the master would return. And all they wanted to hear the master say is, well done, good and faithful servant. Of course, you know the story well enough. There was one who was not doing anything with the master's resources. And when, when the master came back to audit the books, he called that servant a wicked and lazy servant. And we said, we don't want to be the kind of people who hear that out of the mouth of Jesus. We got one shot at life. Let's give him everything we've got. Let's take our time, our talent, and our resources, and let's motivate those things for the things of God and for the kingdom of God. And then we looked at Wednesday. We said, we didn't know what Jesus did on Wednesday, right? And so we believe, most scholars believe that Jesus spent the day in prayer, which makes an awful lot of sense since in just 48 hours he's going to be crucified. All the sin of mankind is going to be placed upon him. We don't know what Jesus did on Wednesday, but we know that Judas went to the chief priests and the Pharisees and they offered Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver. Well, now we're up to Thursday. What in the world happened on Thursday? Well, Thursday, Jesus meets in the upper room with his disciples. This is the final meal that he's going to have with them before he is arrested and dragged away and he is crucified. Now, the whole meal, the backdrop for the whole meal is the Passover. Remember last week we talked about that God sent a man named Moses and he goes to the Pharaoh of Egypt and says you need to let God's people go. But the Pharaoh refuses to let them go out of slavery. They've been slaves for 400 years. So God sends plague after plague after plague upon the Egyptian people. And the last plague was the plague of the death angel. Every firstborn son was going to die on this night. But God made a provision for those who would sacrifice a lamb. And pour the blood of the lamb over the door frame of the home. When the death angel came, he would pass over that particular house. Not enter into that house and that person would be saved because of the blood of the lamb. Well, on this night, Jesus is going to take bread, and he's going to break it. He's going to say, this is my body, which is broken for you for the forgiveness of sin. And then he'll take the wine, and he'll pour it into a cup, and he'll say, I want you to drink this. This is poured out for you. This is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink this. And so they will, but they won't understand what's going on. Jesus is proclaiming he is the ultimate lamb of God. And when we put our faith and trust in him, well, when the death angel comes for us, he will pass over us because the blood of Jesus is written over the doorframe of our heart. Now, here's what's interesting. You've seen that movie, maybe The Da Vinci Code. Maybe you've read the book. You've probably seen the picture, right? You've seen the picture of the Da Vinci portrait of the Last Supper. Jesus is there, you know, in the middle, and then all the disciples are down through the table, and people are all freaked out over the Da Vinci Code. They said, oh, my goodness, Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, and they had a daughter named Sarah. Oh, my goodness, I don't know what we're going to do. Understand this. None of that's accurate. All that is fiction. It even says it's not true in the very first page of the stinking book. And what took place on that night compared to the picture that Da Vinci painted so many years ago, they're not even close to each other. 
This is the table that he used. It was a U-shaped table. It wasn't a long table with Jesus at the very middle of the table. It was a U-shaped table, and every single position had meaning to it. You see, over here onto this side is the position of honor. And who sits at the position of honor? It's Jesus that does. Now, what's one of the things that we recognize when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that the disciples are very concerned about who's going to sit at his right and who's going to sit at his left when he comes into his kingdom. They fight about who's the greatest over and over and over again. So Jesus sets the name placards up around the table. And to his right, to start the pecking order, is John, the beloved disciple. We know that from the scripture where John sat. And who is to Jesus' left? But Judas Iscariot, he's still reaching out to him. He's still loving him. He's still trying to show him a better way to go. But Judas isn't interested in that. And then we have the other disciples. And here's what's interesting. We really don't know where they sat. I I don't know who was here, who was here, who was here. We just put their names and just put them wherever. But we do know one more seat for sure. And it's the last seat. The lowest of the disciples. This is where Peter sat. Now this had to shock Peter, don't you think? Because he was kind of in Jesus' inner circle. I mean, it was Peter, James, and John. You read that over and over and over again. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. But we know he sits here. And what's he sitting next to? The basin of water. And the towel. When you would come to one of these dinner parties, it was customary that there would be a servant at the door who would make sure that everyone's feet were washed. Why? Well, there was no sewer system back then. Streets were absolutely filthy. Everybody walked around in open-toed shoes. And the Passover meal, well, you reclined at the meal. You got all the way down in the meal. So someone's feet were in your face. And it's a three-hour meal. You don't want someone's stinking feet in your face for a three-hour meal. So there's supposed to be a servant who's supposed to wash the feet. Here's the kicker. If the servant doesn't show up, and he didn't on this night, this is the person who's supposed to wash them. So the disciples come in. Can you imagine the scene? And they see their little name placards where they're supposed to sit. And, oh, John's at the seat of honor. Oh, look at this, Judas. You're right there at the left. Hey, Peter, where are you sitting at? Uh, I'm over here. Well, it came time for the meal. Everybody's got dirty feet. Why they got dirty feet? Because Peter refused to serve. Peter refuses to humble himself. Even though Jesus has said over and over again, if you want to be first, be last. If you want to be great, be a servant. He's testing Peter. But Peter, <laughs> he's not going to rise to the test. And so the Bible tells us that there's a fight. And what's the fight over? It's the same thing they always fought over. Which one of them is the greatest? Well, Jesus has already told them. He's already put the pecking order down. Why are they fighting? Because Peter refuses to do what he's supposed to do. Can you relate to him? Can can you relate to this idea of seeing a need and not meeting the need? I mean, every single day we have opportunities, don't we, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We see obvious needs and then we don't do anything about the need. My goodness, you go to church week after week after week, year after year after year. You never serve. And you hear the preacher, you see the kids workers, you see the student workers, you see guest service. You're like, oh, I could do something. Why don't you? Because it's easy to see a need. It's really hard to take up the towel and meet the need. It's the same way in your home. 
How many times you've been walking around your house and you see needs, you see things that need to be done, but what do you do? You just kind of sit down, let's see somebody else going to do it, right? Because it's one thing to see a need, it's another thing to pick up the towel and actually meet the need. I don't know about you, I don't like serving other people. I just don't. It just goes against me. The other day we had a chocolate cake in the house. Those are delicious. We got a chocolate cake in the house and uh, got the last piece of chocolate cake. So I turned around. I said, is it okay if I eat the last piece of chocolate cake? My wife said, yeah, that'd be great. You can have the last piece of chocolate cake. I said, thank you so very, very much. So I'm sitting there and I'm enjoying the last piece of chocolate cake. And I'm eating it and about three-fourths of the way there. And my wife is kind of looking across the way at my chocolate cake. And I can see that she's eyeballing my cake. And I'm like, why are you eyeballing my cake? And she said, hey, can I have that last bite? Do you know what last bite she's talking about? She's talking about that best bite. You understand what I'm saying? That's where the top and the side come together and all the frosting goodness is right there. I mean, you saved that bite for the last bite. You know what I'm saying? It's like the fireworks display at the end of Disneyland. You understand what I'm saying? She said, can I have that last bite? I didn't even get a chance to say no. She just swiped in and took it. I was like, what just happened? And I was upset because she had taken my last bite of chocolate cake. How many times have we been through a drive-thru? And I say, hey, what do, you, what, do you, what, do you want, what do you want to order? She said, I'll just take a hamburger. I'm, I'm not real hungry. I don't want any fries. Are you sure? No, I'm watching my weight. I don't want any fries. Well, I know what this means. My fries are gone. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I just ignore it. And I always order a second order of fries because I like fries. Do you understand what I'm saying? We just don't like to serve other people. This is embarrassing to tell, but it was happened years ago when my kids were very little. Uh, we had a minivan. That's what the embarrassing part is, to be honest with you. We had a minivan. Nobody looks cool in a minivan. If you got a minivan, just realize you're not cool, okay? I get why you did it. You did it for your wife. Happy wife, happy life. I understand, but I was driving around in a minivan. Well, on this particular evening, I was all by myself, and, and I was pulling down in the minivan. I got up to an intersection. And there was a lady who was next to me, and wouldn't you know it, that my street was going to end in just a few feet. So I was going to have to merge over into the other lane. Well, I, I got places to go. I got people to see. I'm a very important person, you know. And so I knew that whatever I had going on in my schedule was more important than whatever this lady had going on in her schedule. So when the light turned green, I put the pedal to the metal, okay? Now, here's what was interesting. The woman put the pedal to the metal as well. Now, I was in a minivan, okay? I want to emphasize minivan. You can put the pedal through the metal, and you're not going to pass the car next to you. So we get to the end, and I'm neck and neck with her, but there's no way, and my lane's in it. So I had to slam on the brakes, and I got behind her. And that was fine. That was fine. Till she did this. I said, it's on like Donkey Kong now. That's the way it's going to be, all right. So I, I hate to say this, but I pulled up as close to her as I possibly could, and I put on my brights. That's my job. I bring light where there's darkness. Do you understand? It's what I do. It's what I do. And the bride of Satan needed some light. Do you understand what I'm saying? So you know what she did to retaliate? She slowed it down. So that's fine. You keep it slow. I'll keep it bright. Here we go. Well, eventually the road opened up, and I just blew by her in the minivan. I was so mad. And wouldn't you know it, got to the next intersection, and the light was red. She pulled up next to me. So I glanced over. 
And I got good news and I got bad news. Good news is she said I was number one. <laughs> bad news is I didn't appreciate the finger she used to tell me that I was number one. There's just, there's just something inside of me. Maybe there's something inside of you. We get the opportunity to serve somebody else. We just, we just won't do it. We just look for somebody else to do what needs to be done. You know what I'm thankful about in that story? Is that it happened years ago before we had sagebrush stickers. Do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> Disciples don't want to serve. Peter, he doesn't want to serve. So the Bible says the meal was finally served. The meal was finally served. As the meal was being served, the Bible says, Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus knows where those 24 feet are going to go in the next few hours. He, he knows that Judas is going to betray him, that Peter is going to deny him, not once, not twice, but three times. And all the other disciples, they're going to run away to save their own necks. And they're going to leave Jesus to face his execution all by himself. And Jesus knows that. And he washes all their feet, even the feet of Judas. And he could have passed it. He could have said, hey, Pete, first will be last, last will be first. Get to wash him. But Jesus set for them an example. You see, there are times in your life when you probably think to yourself, how can I serve other people when they don't even appreciate the things that I do for them? I mean, how can you continue to serve your husband, ladies, when he never even acknowledges your needs? And gentlemen, how can you continue to serve your wife when she never stops long enough to say, you know, I really appreciate all the sacrifices you make for us around here. How do you continue to serve a child who never says thank you? How do you serve a parent who always tells you that your best just isn't good enough? How do you serve people when they don't even appreciate? And how do you keep doing that over and over and over again? Jesus didn't care what anybody else's response was. He saw a need. He met a need. And it wasn't just on this evening. It was the entire course of his ministry, meeting the needs of other people. And he could have opted out. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. But he took up the towel. What do we do many times? We fold it up. We set it aside. We look for somebody else to do what needs to be done. Because we didn't get the gratification. But Jesus didn't opt out. Out. Well, during the meal, Judas gets up and he leaves. Now, you all know where he's going. He's going to betray Jesus. And the Bible says that they finished the Last Supper, and then they sang a closing song, and then they all headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane is one of the favorite places of Jesus. And so they get to the gate of the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus asks Peter, James, and John to go a little bit farther into the gate. And so he says to them, he says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Stay here, keep watch, pray for me. Now you would think that these three guys could do that, right? But they kept falling asleep. 
And Jesus is under an intense battle at this point in time. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus prays so intensely that sweat drops of blood are pouring down from his brow. He prays for himself. He prays for his disciples. And the last prayer, the last group that he prays for was for you and me. He prays for those who will come years from now who will never see and yet they will still believe. And right there in that moment in time, Jesus made his decision. Because the Bible says he prays, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Friends, it was there in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus decided that he'd rather go through hell with you than to be in heaven without you. And so the soldiers come. And Jesus walks in the direction of where the soldiers are at and... That's when Judas gives Jesus the betrayer's kiss. And they bind Jesus and they take him away. The disciples flee in the night. And Jesus is then dragged throughout the streets for the next five, six hours. From one trial to another trial to another trial. And all along the way, they're taking shots at him. All along the way, they're punching him and spitting on him and pulling in his beard and The last trial was before Pilate, and Pilate's been looking for a way to get Jesus out of this. But the people will not be appeased. The same people who five days earlier said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, 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 are now lining the streets saying, crucify him, crucify him. When the dawn's light comes up, Jesus is so badly beaten that he is beyond recognition. And then the Bible says this line that haunts me. It says, Pilate gave in to the demands of the people. Boy, when you give in to the demands of people, you always find yourself making the wrong decision. And he handed Jesus over to be crucified. Now, he's been beaten. He's been whipped. He is severely dehydrated at this point. He's lost an awful lot of blood. And they make him pick up his cross and carry it to the place of the skull, Golgotha. It is a one-mile stretch of land. And it's uphill the whole way. So I want you to imagine the scene in Jerusalem. They have, they have uh, uh, businesses. They have shops that are the streets just barely wide enough for a car, one car to go through. And so people are opening up their shops, and there's already a mob, and people are just going absolutely crazy. And Jesus, and everybody's trying to get a shot at him. I mean, everybody's trying to hit him. Everybody's trying to hurt him. And somewhere, we don't know where, along that one-mile stretch of road, Jesus, completely exhausted, falls down under the weight of the cross. And another man in the crowd is chosen to pick up the cross and carry it for Jesus the rest of the way. Now remember, Jesus is executed between two thieves. I can imagine in my mind that when it came time to nailing them to their crosses, that they fought pretty hard. But I just imagine that when it was Jesus' turn, he willingly laid down his life for the likes of you and me. And then they took those nails and they placed them into his hands and into his feet. And then the Roman soldiers, they always did this in a crucifixion. They would play a game. The hole would already be dug. 
but they would sway the cross back and forth, back and forth, because they didn't want the person to be prepared for when the cross would go down into the ground. They'd play that game, swaying the cross, swaying the cross, swaying the cross, and then they'd throw it down as hard as they could so it'd rip where those nails were going through his hands and his feet. And there he hung, completely naked. They stripped him of his clothes. We know that because they gambled for him. And they laughed at him, and they cursed him, and they made fun of him. And the first thing he said from the cross is, Father, forgive them, for they don't, they don't know what they're doing. He's still reaching out. Noon comes around, and something supernatural takes place. The sky grows dark. And Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying so intensely, sweat drops of blood are pouring from his brow. This is why. It wasn't the nails in his hands and his feet. It wasn't the crown of thorns on his head. It was this moment when the sky grew dark. And he who knew no sin became sin so that we might be made right with God. That's what the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you turned your back on me? God's holy. He cannot be in the presence of sin. And so God the Father turns his back on his only son. And let me ask you a question. How hard would that be, Dad? Watch your son be crucified for the sins of all mankind. He's done nothing wrong. And you have all power, you have all authority to stop it. And you hear his cries for help. I believe in that moment, God the Father was holding on to his throne with white knuckle intensity. As the sins of all mankind were placed upon Jesus. Every evil, wicked, dark thing we've ever done or mankind has ever come up with. Imagine the despair. Imagine how that would so overwhelm you. Imagine the weight that would be put on you in that moment. The Bible says that this was a, not an eclipse of the sun, that the whole earth was darkened. Why? Heaven's grieving. Look at what we've done to the precious Son of God. For three hours, darkness covers the earth. And then Jesus says, Tetelestai. It is finished. It's an old first century term. If you had a loan with somebody else, you would make payments for that loan. And when you finally made the last payment, they would stamp on the documents... Tetelestai, paid in full. Jesus was proclaiming from the cross that your sin debt has been paid in full by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Remember this, never forget it. If you could save yourself, why does he die on the cross? Our goodness isn't good enough. And our religiosity, my goodness, the best we could do is but filthy rags compared to him. And so Jesus saw us in a world that's unfair, in a sin-soaked body and soul. And he decided in that moment in time to rescue us. 
The last thing he said from the cross is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last breath. Joseph of Arimathea came out of the shadows and went to Pontius Pilate and said, Can I have his body? And so they take his body down, he and Nicodemus, and they lay it in a tomb, a tomb that's never been used. And they put a huge stone in front of the tomb. They've They've got to bury him quickly. The Sabbath is coming. And the Romans, they put a seal on the tomb. And then they put the elite Roman guard in front of the tomb. Why'd they do that? Well, the Pharisees remembered that Jesus predicted he would rise again from the dead three days later. So they wanted to be certain that the disciples didn't steal his body away and proclaim that Jesus had risen again from the dead. Now, where, where are the disciples? Where, where, where are those brave ones? Well, they're hiding. They're scared to death. They, they've just seen from a distance their, 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 their Messiah die a, a miserable death. And they are absolutely certain that the Roman officials are coming for them next. And so where are they hiding? They're back in the upper room. And I wonder if the table was still set up. And I wonder if the events of Thursday night played into their mind. It's Saturday morning. And the disciples' heads are absolutely reeling. How could things go so badly so quickly? How could the public opinion turn on Jesus so quickly? Judas has gone out and hung himself over what he's done. And Peter can't even look himself in the mirror because he denied Christ not once, not twice, but three times. It's Saturday. Satan is laughing. The disciples are reeling. And all heaven is grieving. You ever been there? You ever lived in the midst of a Saturday? All of a sudden you get the news that the test results aren't good. You find yourself on a Saturday. All of a sudden the divorce papers are served to you. You find yourself in the midst of a Saturday. Your child tells you they don't want to live there anymore. And they don't appreciate your rules. And they're leaving. Or they decide to stay. But they're going to smoke pot get drunk and you try to reason with them you try to help them you pray to God that they would come to their senses it's Saturday hope is gone and oh how you need a Sunday let me let you on a little secret our God is in the business of resurrecting dead things He can resurrect a dead dream. He can resurrect a dead marriage. He can resurrect a dead soul that lives inside that prodigal son or that prodigal daughter. Saturday turns to Sunday. The Bible says earlier on the first day of the week while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. 
Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look at the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one of the head, one of the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't recognize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On Sunday, a stone got rolled away. Death lost its sting and grave lost its victory. On Sunday, hell was defeated. The tomb was empty and Jesus had risen again from the dead. On Sunday, sin lost, shame died, and love won. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for seeing something inside of us that was worth dying for. Thank you for giving us value, for giving us significance, and for giving us purpose. Oh, Lord, if there's someone here today or someone at home that doesn't know your amazing grace, your amazing forgiveness, the love that you have for us, oh, it's so high, so wide, so deep, so long, I pray today would be the day they'd open their heart up to you. Today would be the day they would trust you to be the leader and the forgiver of their life. Thank you for coming for us. Thank you for conquering sin, death, and the grave. Thank you that one day, maybe soon, you'll come back to take us to be with you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.